Open your Bibles with me to the book of Job. Job chapter 14. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. (laughs) How many of you feel that way sometimes? Verse 2, He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. That's the feel-good passage of the year, isn't it? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us to understand just from Your Word uh, this, this issue of suffering. And Lord, it is a question that we as believers have to be able to address. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I do want to say this. The Bible conference coming up starting tomorrow night, be sure and invite somebody and be sure and be here for it. Uh, Brother Knox, he's just a, just an amazing preacher of the Word. And uh, I'm excited about what he's going to be preaching. If, you know, sometimes the Lord changes, you know, what he puts on your heart. But he told me he was going to be preaching on things uh, that we have, that God has given us other than the Scriptures. And it's an interesting thought, and so I'm excited to hear it. And so I hope that you'll be here. I know we're going to have people from other churches that are going to be coming in, and we're going to have a great time. So be in your place. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 7 o'clock to hear Brother Knox. This, um, this subject, let's read these verses again. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Christian apologists, and I don't know if I've defined this word in a while. Somebody, apologetics, it's not saying I'm sorry. It comes from a Greek word that means to defend. So an apologist is someone who defends Christianity, defends the Scriptures, a Christian apologist. And um, Christian apologists, when dealing with this new brand of atheist that is out there, you know, there have been atheists, you know, probably as long as there have been people, um, and they have always attacked Christianity, um, at least those that are aggressive, some just, just quietly don't believe Others, uh, they are aggressively antagonistic toward Christianity. That's nothing new, whether it's Voltaire or um, uh, Thomas Paine or, you know, historically there have been many. But now these people are not only anti-God, they're anti-theism, they're anti-Christian. And people like Bill Nye think it's child abuse to teach creation. There's a real attack on Christianity and apologists say that the, that the hardest attack for them to defend is this problem of pain. And here is the way that it is expressed. Either God wants to abolish evil and cannot. That wouldn't be much of a God, would it? Or he can abolish evil but doesn't want to. Or he can't and doesn't want to. Or lastly... He can and wants to. If he wants to remove evil and cannot, he is not omnipotent. This is what they say. If he can, or I'm sorry, but if he wants to remove evil and he cannot, he's not omnipotent. That means all-powerful. If he can but does not want to, he is not benevolent. If he neither can nor wants to, He is neither omnipotent nor benevolent. How many of you are glad you're not a philosopher? Right? Dealing with this kind of thinking. 
Now listen, here's the, here's the bottom line for them. They say this. But if God can abolish evil and wants to, and if evil still exists, then God must not be God. God does not exist. So that is the argument from evil. So if there is a God and He wants to stop evil but can't, then He's not omnipotent. If He can but doesn't want to, He's not benevolent. But if He is omnipotent and benevolent and doesn't, all of these arguments come in. Now, for us as Christians, it's really not a hard thing to answer. Um, For the Christian, this is not a hard argument to answer. I wrote this down. Um, For the Christian, the problem of evil is not a difficult concept to answer. For the non-believer or atheist, it's an impossible question to answer. And I'll explain why that is the truth in a minute. But we as Christians understand why why there's evil and suffering in the world. The Bible says, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we understand that God created a perfect world, and He created an innocent and sinless man and a wife for Him, and placed them in a garden that was just absolutely perfect. But He said, You can eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. And the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And of course, Satan comes along and says, Hath God said? And challenges the very word of God. And Eve ate first and then Adam, and so sin enters into the world and death. And I think that all of us who are Christians can understand what happened. So sin entered into the world. Now there's weeds that you have to deal with, and the earth itself has become corrupted. And we as people are sinful, we do sinful deeds. But not only are we sinful, but there is sin in us. The the result of sin is in us. So when a child is born with a deformity, that is because it is a deformity in his genetic makeup. Is that right? And we understand more of that now than we ever have before. As Christians, we understand that when, when something horrible like that happens... It is nothing but the result of sin. Now, I'm not talking about the way that the disciples asked Jesus. There was a a crippled man, and they said, Who did sin, uh, him or his parents? (laughs) Jesus said, Neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed in him. It's interesting. We're not saying that if a child is born with some kind of malady, that it's because his parents did evil. That's not what we're saying. And it's very interesting, these, uh, these new atheists, they will put the information out there as if that's what we are saying, when it's not. Now, let's take a step back. Some religions do say that. These behavior-based religions, they believe in a, in a vindictive and judgmental God who, if you don't behave in a certain way, will bring this kind of judgment into your life. And so they end up giving all kinds of money to the church and they do all kinds of things to try and overcome evil when that is not a biblical relationship at all. I've heard preachers say that um, if you don't tithe, God's going to get His money somehow. Your car will break down. Your... That's ridiculous. That it's, we, we tithe, we give because we love the Lord and we love His work and He has asked us to do that. Is that fair? How many of you recognize that that's fair? 
And let me say this. If you don't honor God with your finances, why would He honor you financially? Is that fair? You don't, it's funny. I'll have people... This is not a money message on giving. This part's for free. You don't have to... This just came to me and I feel like I should say it. Um, I'll have people talk to me that are having trouble with their jobs or whatever. They're, and I'll, this is always, the first question I ask. Are you honoring God with your finances? Are you honoring God with your finances? And that means that you, you tithe and you give and support God's work. If you're not, why should He bless you financially? Is that fair? How many of you think that's fair? Honor Him and He'll honor you. And, of course, you can't outgive God. But that's just an example of sometimes people will take that teaching so far that the car breaks down because you're not tithing. That's just not biblical because we're under grace. Isn't that wonderful? We're under grace. So when we see evil come into the world and a child is born, that will, in our case, our son Riley was born with an extra 13th chromosome. Okay, so that is literally a genetic problem. Every cell of his body was corrupted. And so we had to go to a genetic counselor, and the genetic counselor looked at us. And imagine, these people are so cold. I just, it, it's just amazing. No empathy at all. What they, they, they said this to us. We're sitting there, and we've just been presented with the fact that our son is very, very ill. He had an extra finger on one hand. One eye didn't develop. His chin hadn't developed. His forehead was protruding. Um, he was a very sick little boy. And so we are... We have to go to this genetic counselor. And he looked at us and he said, Riley was a mistake. Can you imagine? And I just got mad. I said, no, he wasn't. God has been with us through every step. He knew every bit of this. Riley was not a mistake. And when he died at his funeral, uh, uh, Brother Sexton preached the message. Uh, he said, Riley was a missionary. And he talked about all the things Riley had taught us through that time. And we just trust God with every bit of that. But when I'm talking about this, these issues in, in our genetic makeup, I want you to know I'm not speaking about it from an academic level only. With, as just an aloof observer of a reality. No, Laura and I were thrust into the very personal reality of that. And so for us to be able to understand what was going on in that situation, as much as it hurt us personally, the simple fact of the matter is that Riley's malady was a result of sin in the world. Do you all recognize that? How many of you would agree with that? Does that mean because Riley had an extra 13th chromosome and was very sick, does that mean that God does not love us? No. But that is the attack from evil. And basically there are two kinds of evil. There is moral evil and there's natural evil. Moral evil is terrorists flying planes into the, the World Trade Center. That's moral evil. Um, Joseph Mengele doing horrible, torturous tests on Jewish children in the concentration camps. How many of you recognize that's moral evil? That is moral evil. Then there's natural evil. A moral evil you can blame on a person. Natural evil, what are you going to do? A tsunami comes in and kills 30,000 people. 
That's natural evil. What do you do with that? And so what the atheist does is the atheist attacks God and says, if God is truly loving, how could He allow this to happen? But here's the problem with that. When the person, when this skeptic is imposing his morality on God, that is implying that there is morality. Where does morality come from? It must come from a moral lawgiver. And as we talked about with Christopher Hitchens, he's climbing up into the lap of God in order to slap him in the face. He's stealing the concept of morality from the God that brought morality into the world. He spoke morality into this world, and he's trying to use that against the God who is absolutely pure and holy. We as Christians, while we may struggle with personal uh, tragedies, you know, when it's, it's one thing to talk about suffering in a, an academic sense. It's like this. It's one thing for the oncologist to study cancer. And none of you are thankful that we have people who do that, right? It's one thing for the oncologist to study cancer. It's another thing when the oncologist gets cancer. How many of you think the subject changes a little bit for the doctor who experiences that? Right? Um, I, I heard someone talk about a heart doctor who had treated people for years, and then he had a heart attack. And he said, people would talk to me about the way that their arm would feel or the way their chest would feel. But he said, I never understood it. He said, not only was it pain, but it was literally, I was in the pain. He understood for the first time what his patients were going through. How many of you think he was a better doctor after that? Right? It's very interesting. There's an academic understanding of pain and suffering, and then there's the reality of the pain and suffering that we experience when we are literally in it. And it's interesting that when you have a heart attack, the thing that is supposed to be giving you life is now the instrument that's causing you the greatest pain. And from what I understand, that when you're having a heart attack, that's a pain almost like no other. Dan, is that true? <laughs> Others who have gone through... Well, yeah, you didn't have that, did you? No. Um, Dan, this is so interesting. Dan, the most low-keyed guy in the world, he even has a low-keyed heart attack. <laughs> Doc, I'm feeling something. Oh, you're going to have to have quadruple bypass. Hmm, okay. <laughs> but anyway, it is interesting how when we enter into this pain that the conversation is different. Now, it's so funny. As I'm looking out here, I'm watching. You can tell people who've had pain and people who haven't. Kids are so bored right now, it's unbelievable. <laughs> now, how many of you are thankful that they've not experienced it? Man, I'm so thankful that you guys... Now, some of you have had, as I look out, some of you have had true experiences with, with pain and suffering. But most children don't, and we're very thankful for that, right? But as I look out and I see people who have, who have been in the throes of suffering, now this is a, this is a conversation that, that you want to have. This is an understanding that you want to have. And we as Christians, we have to be able to answer it. So how does the atheist answer the problem of pain? Richard Dawkins said, um, in a universe of blind physical forces, this is going to be so comforting for you. 
In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Doesn't that make you feel better? That needs to be on a Hallmark card, you know, you send to somebody that's in the hospital. Um, and what's interesting about that, I was listening to Ravi Zacharias, and he said that they had this, this cricket tournament in England, and it was a three-day match. And I don't know how a match can last for three days, but that's cricket, I guess. And so the New Zealanders had come in, and they're playing the Brits, and this New Zealander somehow was tagged out, and he knew he was out. Everybody, that, all the players knew he was out. Everybody that was watching knew he was out, but the umpire didn't see it. Anybody feel that pain right there? Yeah. The umpire didn't see it, so the umpire said, not out. And Dawkins, they ended up, England ended up losing, New Zealand won, and Dawkins says, that's not right! He knew he was out, he shouldn't have, he's just ranting, and so on Twitter it blew up. He said, they said, Richard, how can you be so upset? He was just dancing to his DNA. There's no good or evil, there's no right or wrong, how can you say he was out? Isn't that interesting? When these ideas come to reality, you see they completely break down. They don't work. Because the Bible says in the book of Romans, let's look at it. Look at Romans. Let's see. Look at Romans chapter 2. And look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law... Remember, the, the law was given to the Jews. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. And now, what's interesting about that verse is this, and it's so important, it's so true for us to get. We understand that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. Is that what the Bible says? We understand that. But from a human perspective, right and wrong, moral and immoral, atheists can perform moral acts. Right? Just because a person's an atheist doesn't mean they want to go and chop up babies. Right? It's a special kind of evil and liberalism that wants to chop up babies and sell their parts. How many of you know in your heart that that's evil? Nobody has to tell you that that's evil. So there's a special kind of debauchery and evil behind that. But you know that there are, there are many pro-life atheists. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Why? Because you don't have to have, to have the Bible to understand right and wrong. Why? Because God's written it on your heart. You know it. You know it innately. You see little children who, they, they, they have you, you watch it, it's just hilarious. They settle things among themselves. And there's justice. And you, know, and you can tell a child's nature. You know, sometimes a little kid is just mean. Just mean. 
You, in the nursery, you see this little petri dish of evil. <laughs> you know, there's a little kid, two years old, walks up and just. <laughs> What's funny is this: there's this one kid that's really nice, and this other kid who's mean came up, bopped him, and the the other one pinched him, and the one that hit just understood the pecking order. Now in the nursery. <laughs> it's so interesting. It really is survival of the fittest. And you watch all this going on with these kids, and you see their nature. Some, some children are sensitive. Some children are mean. Some children are selfish. Some children are charitable. And, it, and it's all visible right there in this one little mass of stink <laughs> in the nursery. Um... And those children, when they're confronted with doing wrong, they know they've done wrong. They hang their heads. There's a, there's a sorrow because God has written His law on their hearts. They have consciences. And there are children who are born without consciences, and they are called sociopaths. And they usually go to Congress. But <laughs> it's really interesting when you look at... The reality of this, this, that there is justice in the world, that there is evil in the world, there's right and wrong, and God's written that on our hearts. And when it comes to this answer, this question of suffering, we as Christians, we must be able to confront those who say that there cannot be a loving God if there is evil in the world. So how are we going to confront that? Well, first of all, we need to understand the absolute reality of pain, the absolute reality of pain. Um, how many of you have heard of a Christian science, a Christian scientists movement, Mary Baker Eddy? It's neither Christian nor science, all right? But it's called Christian science. And what she believed and taught was that all pain is really an illusion. Right? That's, I'm an illusionist. <laughs> Did that hurt? <laughs> it's just silly, just crazy. And we understand the reality of it. And if you don't have pain well, then you're going to have all kinds of problems in the world, right? Because pain, if you put your hand too close to a fire, you feel that pain, and that causes you to pull out of that so that you don't do more damage. Pain is actually a gift from God. Isn't that right? Now, I know there are times when you're saying, I need a little less of that gift. But, but the ability to feel pain, it's, it's vital to our safety and our flourishing. There's no doubt about that. The reality of pain, it does exist, so when we get this argument from evil, well, we just have to realize, yeah, pain does exist. But not only does it exist, but the absolute universality of pain, everyone suffers. The Bible says there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. All of us suffer pain and we have struggles. You know, I was watching Wade New try to walk up the stairs today. I said, man, you're kind of moving kind of tender today. And, oh, it's my knee. It hurts. And he's just getting old. And you know what? Honestly, there's a benefit to being a foot shorter. There's less to move up the stairs, see? And it's just, it's just good. And it's, this, is, this is really important. The older we get... Now, I know that there are some people that are really blessed. Man, they live their whole lives without really any joint pain or any struggles. How many of you, that has not been your experience, right? It's, it's universal and we all experience it. I don't think that's the pain that people struggle with. It's the pain of loss. 
It's the pain of serious suffering, people who have serious diseases. And imagine this. It's only been in the last couple hundred years that we really had anesthetics. Can you imagine what people went through with no pain medication? Can you even imagine what that was like? So there is this universality of suffering. Pain does exist. It's real. And pain is universal. But this is also a really complex subject because, again, if we're talking about studying cancer, that's different than having cancer. I heard Frank Turek, the guy that I showed the video of last week, that someone asked him about this question, and he asked, someone said, what about the problem of pain? And it was so wise the way that he answered it, and I wouldn't have thought to answer it this way. He said, well, it depends on why you're asking. If you are in pain, if you are suffering, if this is a question from personal experience, you don't need an apologist, you need a pastor. Isn't that good? From an intellectual argument, if it's just a, a question, an intellectual question, then we have to have the teaching and the arguments and the ability to answer those things on an intellectual level. But there are two aspects to it, and that's why this becomes a very complex question. When a, it, it's very easy when you've never really had any problems to talk about the solution to problems. But when you begin to experience those problems, now you understand the complexity of it, the problem of pain. And the world has experienced that. So what's the answer? It's the absolute necessity of love. The absolute necessity of love. And this is where it really does become vital that for us to understand and get this, really think about this with me. And I know, listen, this isn't the most exciting sermon that I've ever preached, but it's stuff that we need to think about. And... This is the thought that I want you to grasp on this subject. Our capacity to love depends upon our capacity to choose. Our capacity to love depends upon our capacity to choose. And so it's like this. Imagine if... This is the way to picture it. People who want God to have created a world where there's no suffering where there's no pain, where there's no trouble. It would be like men, you coming home, and your wife is this robot, right? And she's got like an iPad here. And you walk, you, you walk in the door, and you push, there's a little button that says, kiss. And boop. <laughs> That's not the same as your wife having missed you while you're at work, and she greets you and kisses you because she loves you. That's different than a robot. Now, I know some of you dweebs would rather have the robot. I know some of you guys are here. But in reality, loving, it requires a choice. And that's the wonderful thing. I always think about this. Uh, um, Lydia's out at West Coast, and they just had their... Um, they call it the spring banquet or something. It's kind of a Valentine's banquet type thing. And it's so funny. You can just picture these guys. I remember when I was in school. And Bible college is nice because you can have these dating relationships. And it's, it's pure and it's holy and it's in an atmosphere. It's really cool. But it, it's so funny. You'll watch a guy and it's the biggest dweeb in the world asking the, asking the prettiest girl out. And I'm just thinking, man, if he's got the nerve to do it, Right on, man. You just go right ahead. 
And it's so funny. And you watch these guys ask a girl out, and she says yes. And on the, ins- on the outside, they're going, yeah. On the inside, they're going, really? She said yes. I can't believe it. On the outside, yeah. Hey, you can't touch this. Yeah. It's just so funny to watch it happen. And what is that? That's that's the reality of recognizing that this girl has a choice to say yes or to say no. Right? Otherwise, it's called stalking and kidnapping, and we're really against that. I told you before that song, My Eyes Adored You. That is the number one stalker song that's ever been written. Now... So when she says yes, or you girls, man, you know what it's like when Mr. Wright comes along and asks you out, and you're thinking, I can't believe he asked me. What's the, what, why is it like that? Because you recognize the value of his choice and that he has chosen you. That's what love is about. Love requires a choice. And that's where our thinking about God is vital. Uh, there's a Baptist, he's, he's dead now, he lived in the early 1900s, his name was Arthur Pink. And he wrote a lot of really helpful things, but he also wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God, which caused a lot of trouble. And so listen to what he said about this. Um, before, talking about Adam, before he formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, God knew exactly how the appointed test would terminate. With this, it was the test of whether or not he was going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With this statement, every Christian reader must be in accord, for to deny God's foreknowledge is to deny his omniscience. So we all know that God knew that Adam was going to eat of the fruit when he told him not to, right? We understand that. But here's what he says. But we must go further. Not only had God a perfect knowledge of the outcome of Adam's trial... Not only did his his omniscient eye see Adam eating of the forbidden fruit, listen, but he decreed beforehand that he should do so. Now, how many of you think God decreed that God required Adam to eat the fruit and that Adam had no choice? You believe that? You've got to be a Calvinist to believe that. In other words, you've got to take your brain out and play with it. To believe that. That's not the God of the Bible. How can God hold us responsible for something He required us to do? He can't. That would be the ultimate injustice. That's not the God that we serve. We do have free will, we do have choice. And the thing that we have to understand is the only way that God can remove evil from the world is for Him to come in judgment and destroy the evil and all the evildoers. Destroy this world because this world has fallen, tsunamis at all, and set everything right. And so in order for there to be true love and true choice, in order for there to be good, there has to be evil. And every person has the opportunity to choose love and to choose right or to choose evil and everything that comes along with it. That's why there's evil and suffering in the world. And listen, in order for God to stop babies like our Riley from being born, He has to remove sin from the world. 
He's going to do that. And that means no one else will ever have the opportunity to be saved. You see, this is the long-suffering of Jesus Christ. Look at Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. The Bible says in verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth what? Righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace and without, uh, with, with peace without spot and blameless. Now look at this, verse 15, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. The long suffering of our Lord. So what's the answer? When we see this, I said that the answer is love. You have this problem of suffering and pain in the world. The answer is love. When I see Jesus on the cross, I realize that God has not remained distant from the problem of human suffering, but He has Himself become a part of it. I want you to see Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. It's amazing the truth that we find in familiar passages. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Why? Because we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. And it's interesting. This Jesus Christ who came into this world, the Bible says that He was made to suffer. That's why He came. He came to suffer. So think about this. The Creator, you know, the deist says that God created the world and then just has no interaction in it. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve created the world, saw the sin that men had chosen, and rather than just destroying anyone, He stepped into the creation. He became a part of the creation. He entered into the suffering and the pain and even the death, and He bore that for us. That is love. So what lessons can we learn from suffering? There are many. And I mentioned in Sunday school that the whole second half of this sermon is going to be cut off and 
I'm going to preach it on Easter about the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. But what can we learn from suffering? Number one, we ought to hate sin. When you're in pain, when struggle comes, don't hate God. Hate sin. The Bible says that sin brings forth death. It brings suffering. What we need to understand when we are suffering, that ought to give us a greater understanding of the holiness and the righteousness of God, and it ought to engender in us a hatred for the sin that's around us as well as for the sin that's in us. So when we suffer, it needs to lead us to hate sin. Number two, when we suffer, we need to recognize the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ because we're not alone in our suffering. We all know the verse. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was on all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ loves us so much. He entered into our suffering with us. You're not alone in it. So number one, your suffering should lead you to hate sin. Number two, it needs to point you to Jesus Christ who suffered. Now let me tell you something. On the cross, so whatever it is that you're suffering, you need to recognize that on the cross, your Savior suffered not only that, the penalty of your sin, your suffering, but the suffering of every person that ever lived or ever would live. So take your suffering and multiply it by the suffering of every person in the world. That's what Jesus Christ endured on the cross. That's what He endured. He not only entered into your suffering, He bore the suffering and the pain of everyone that's ever lived, the penalty of their sin. So when you suffer, I ought to point you to Jesus. Just say, Lord, I know I'm suffering, but you suffered so much more. Now let me say this. That doesn't diminish your suffering. You're still hurting. Your pain doesn't go away, but it helps you to put it in perspective. You know what verse I love? Our light affliction... It's but for a little while. It's but for a little while. Then we have eternity with Him. It's very important that we get this. That when I see Jesus on the cross, I realize that God has not remained distant from the problem of human suffering, but has Himself become a part of it. But the good news is that's not the end of it because Jesus Christ was put in the tomb and He rose from the dead. What does that tell me? That not only did He endure my suffering, He conquered it. He conquered it. And there are ramifications to that. And that is that eventually suffering and sin will end and there will be righteousness because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and He's coming back again. So when you're in suffering, when you're in pain, help it to lead you to hate sin and to love Jesus and to look for His return. But always keep in mind that your suffering, the reason that you're suffering is so that other people can be saved. One of the things that I will talk about, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday is the way that Jesus suffered and what He taught us from that. But do you know that when you are in pain and when you are suffering, your lost friends and family members are watching the way that you endure suffering? How many of you think that a Christian ought to endure pain and suffering differently than lost people should? How many of you think that there ought to be a difference? 
So here's my question for you. In your own life, have you demonstrated that? I know that in my life, there have been times when I've been under pressure and I would never want anyone to have seen the way that I behaved. Anyone else you've been there, right? Or what you thought, right? My desire is that when I am pressed, that I show the character, the love, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's spiritual maturity. That's spiritual maturity. It is your, Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your adversity. But help it to refine you, to hate sin, to love Jesus, to look for His appearing, and to behave differently so that lost people can see Jesus Christ in you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father.